Well, uh, for those of y'all who don't know me, my name is Trey Corey. I'm our college pastor here. And uh, a lot of people this morning knew something was up, not because they saw me dressed up with a mic, but they noticed Blake was pretty dressed casual this morning. And so a lot of people were sensing that maybe something was askew and different. So Blake, if you wonder if people are watching what you wear, they are, and they know what you're wearing. So, but I'm our college pastor here, and it's a joy to be with you guys. I'm, we're going to be continuing on in our series of First Peter this morning. So if you guys will turn, we're going to be First Peter chapter 2 this morning. As you guys turn to First Peter 2, uh, a lot of y'all may know this, but my wife Marcy and I have a little baby girl, Caroline, who we've realized she's no longer a baby. She'll be turning one on a Wednesday. And so this past weekend, we had a little party with some friends and a lot of our family. And uh, I've been reflecting back over the last year how much has changed, uh, not only in our life, but even in hers. A little child who uh, the first few weeks slept probably about 20 hours a day. It was surreal. Uh, and then watching that little child over just one year change and grow and develop. You know, and so some little child begins to learn to eat, begins to learn to crawl, begins to learn to stand up. All kinds of things have begun to happen even this past few weeks. Now that the Dallas Cowboys finally won a game last weekend, she's learned to clap. All right. Uh, she really hadn't had much to clap about just yet because we watched Cowboy football in our home. All right. There's certain activities that as she's been developing are normal and natural for a child. It's not surprised us that she's clapping. It's not surprised us that she's learning to wave. It's not surprised us that she's crawling. These are all natural and normal activities for a child that's developing and growing. In fact, that image is really right where Peter left off with us last week. If you guys will turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we're going to pick up there and then we're going to read through our passage this morning, which will be verses 4 to 10. But just as a reminder, this is where Peter left us last week. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in the respect to salvation. Last week, as Blake walked us through this section, Blake mentioned to us that really, in a sense, the word of God is the means for our growth. It's how you and I come to Jesus Christ, and it's how you and I begin to become transformed back into his image. But what he's going to do for us this morning is not focus so much on how we grow, but really from verses 4 to 10, what we're going to see this morning is two activities that are natural and normal for the person who's growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Just as natural and normal as it is for a child to begin to learn to crawl and to eat solid food, so it is natural that you and I would begin to develop and experience these two kinds of activities that Peter's going to draw our attention to this morning. Specifically, where he's going to draw our attention to is the two activities that we call worship and witness. And so uh, I'm going to violate the classic tried and true principle of preaching, which is a three-point outline. I'm going to have two points for you guys this morning. Worship and witness, all right? We're still going to alliterate because that's what preachers do, but we're going to have two points, all right? Uh, so we might actually get out of here even a little early this morning, all right? But what Peter's going to do for us is he's going to take us to these two areas, our worship and our witness. Two activities that are normal for the believer who's growing in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Yet I think two activities, two capacities in our life that are often some of the most quick to atrophy and to grow stale in our life. And so I think Peter, as he takes us here, is going to give us a fresh reminder. And and hopefully, I think he's going to begin to stretch us as to what these capacities and these activities look like afresh in our life. So look with me, if you will, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. Follow along with me as I read. Peter writes, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieved the stone which the builders rejected. This became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, 
And to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's going to take us really to two basic aspects, two activities of the believer who's walking in relationship with Jesus Christ. And those two activities are a lifestyle of worship and a lifestyle of witness. And my hope this morning as we kind of look at these two topics that are familiar is that as we look afresh at them, my hope is that it'll stretch us in a new way in each of these areas. Peter's really going to start out in a sense in in verses 4 to 8 with this topic of our worship. What does it mean for you and I to worship we have a worship service, we have a worship band, we have a worship leader, uh, and we do all these things that we title with this synonym or this name, worship. Well, what does it mean to worship? Notice how Peter begins to describe this activity in our life. He says, verse 4, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Notice Peter's gonna, first thing he's going to tell us is in a sense that worship is a valuable pursuit. Worship by its very essence is a movement towards something or someone. Peter's going to say in verse 4 that you and I are coming to him, but notice who we're moving towards. Notice who we're pursuing. It says, you and I are coming to him who has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Notice it is also him who is a living stone, that Jesus Christ, him who we worship, is not an inanimate object. He's not an idol. He's not one who's been carved out of wood. He's not one who's been chiseled as stone, but he is living. He is alive. Crucified, resurrected, and ascended. Though he is absent, he is alive. You and I worship a living king and a resurrected and ascended king, one who is absent and yet alive. And in our worship, we're coming, we're pursuing, and we're approaching him. One who's been rejected by men and yet choice and valuable in the sight of God. Ultimately, what worship is in any context is a pursuit of that which you and I deem valuable. Worship is a pursuit of that which you and I deem valuable. And as a result, for the most part, for you and I, worship is not just a valuable pursuit, but it is our created purpose. Worship is not just a valuable pursuit, but it is also our created purpose. You and I inevitably will worship. The question is, what will we worship? And why will we worship it? It's almost impossible to step and watch a football game and attend a football game without having some experience of what worship is like. It's impossible to watch that Aggie football game on Thursday night and not have your heart completely attached and into the game, right? As it twists and it turns. Sports and a football game is often a great picture of what worship can and does look like. It involves our heart. It involves something that we're attached to, something that we find valuable. Also, for us at a football game, we can absolutely lose our voice because we're proclaiming and screaming and yelling with all that we are. Worship is something that involves the entirety of our lives and the entirety of our, our, of our, our whole beings. And we'll talk even more about that as we go. But I think football, a concert, those kinds of experiences give you guys a great picture of what worship can and at times does look like. You and I will worship something, but the question is, what will you and I worship? What Peter will say here in verses 5 and 6 is that you and I, and what God will do for us as he redeems us and he changes our lives is that he'll restore to you and I a new identity and he'll restore to you and I a new activity, all centered around worship. Notice verse 5, he says, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Notice the identity that you and I have. We're coming to a living stone, but we also are living stones. There's repetition there, and it's not by accident, because what you and I worship is what you and I often become. What you and I worship is what you and I become. My mom, growing up, often said to me that you are what you eat. 
Not exactly true, all right? <laughs> I'm not a bunch of popcorn and bluebell ice cream, all right? Although I love those things, right? But I am what I worship. What I pursue and what I deem valuable becomes really who I am. Really, in the majority of it for us, is that which we worship, that which is exalted becomes that which we live up to. And so if we have worship something that is infinitely valuable, we will live up to that. But if we worship something that is not that worthy, then we will live down to that. You and I become what we worship. And Peter will give us a new identity as we come to this living stone. He says, you are living stones and you are being built up as a spiritual house. You and I, our identity, even what we do here on a Sunday morning as we gather, is a picture very tangibly of what's happening spiritually. You and I are being, as we trusted in Jesus Christ and have come into the body of Christ, we are being formed into an organism, into a building that is worshiping God. Uh, You and I are being formed on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but notice the activity that we've been given. Why are we a part of this building? We're a holy priesthood. What are we doing to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ? What Jesus Christ has done for us is not just redeem us from the penalty of the sin that has separated us from him, but he's also restored us back to what we were meant to worship, back to what we were meant to find fulfillment in. You and I are are, are priesthood. You and I are those that are arranged and being built so as to offer, in a sense, worship back to Jesus Christ. And it is in that redeemed activity that we find a fulfillment found nowhere else, no matter what else we pursue. It is in the worship of a king who is immortal and invisible that we find ultimate satisfaction. In fact, as we kind of walk through this passage, really what I think gets really interesting as we continue to move through is it's not just our created purpose, but it comes and we experience it as a very sacrificial price. It's not just a pursuit that has purpose to it, but it's also a pursuit that comes with a hefty price. And in fact, he's going to start off the price for those who don't believe. He says in verse 7, The precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone is stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. The language there is really difficult. And in fact, we're not going to have time to really kind of delve in as deeply as we could. I know Blake, even as the book opened, went into a lot about predestination and election. But ultimately, what I want you guys to see here from verses uh, 7 and 8 is that for those who disbelieve, for those who come to the rock that is Jesus Christ and do not worship, the results are catastrophic. The price of not worshiping is even greater than the price of worshiping. Both are going to be pricey and both are going to be expensive. But for those who come to the rock, look upon him and choose not to worship, the results are catastrophic. Uh, For those of us who've come to Jesus Christ and not trusted that he died on our behalf and that he's removed the penalty for our sins and that we can be reconciled back into a relationship with him. For those of us who've come to that place and not made that recognition and not trusted in Jesus Christ, the result of that decision and a willingness to move away from the rock who is life is absolutely catastrophic. But for you and I who have made that decision, what we find is that the results are also pricey. The results of worship, the cost of worship, cost you and I everything we have. You and I came to Jesus Christ absolutely freely. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He paid all the cost on our behalf. We did not come to Jesus Christ and have to pay anything. But having come to him, having come and entered into a relationship with him absolutely freely, the experience you and I have as we continue to walk with him and continue to draw near and worship is a cost of, of worship that is incredibly pricey. That's why Peter will say that the activity that you and I have in verse 5 is that we are offering up spiritual sacrifices. The very essence of worship is not just a pursuit, but it is a pursuit with a price. It costs us a lot. It costs us everything. In fact, I think in many regards, what you find about the price of our worship is it shows the value we have for God. 
The price that you pay in your worship shows you the value you have in God. If you were to take your wife out on an anniversary date, or if you were to take out your girlfriend on a date that you wanted to express to her how much you cared for her, if you use coupons and you took her to McDonald's, it probably sends the wrong message, right? (laughs) The price that you pay in your worship, the price that you pay in your expression of gratitude and adoration highlights how much you adore the one you're pursuing. It happens in romance. It also happens in worship. It comes and it shows us how much we value God. In fact, what's really interesting is you look at this concept of worship through the Old Testament and even the New Testament is that it gets translated with a whole bunch of other different words than just worship. It doesn't get translated just sing. It doesn't get translated just worship. But often it gets translated with the word service. That our worship shows not just how much we value God, but it also shows us and it leads us to a service of God. Uh, Often through the Old Testament, even through the New Testament, the word for worship gets translated service. That our service is every much a part of our worship, even as our singing. And I think this is a familiar idea for us. Even though we have a worship service, even though we have a worship time and a worship team, none of us really necessarily think worship is only about singing. Uh, For many of us, we, we, we do realize that the entirety of our lives is worship. The entirety of our lives is a sacrifice and an offering to him. And so as we look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see it's often characterized and translated by the word service. And so if you follow this service and you serve in the nursery the next hour, you are still worshiping even though you're not in the worship service because your service to God is every much a part of your worship as when you're sitting here in a worship service. And so that's why Paul will say in Philippians 2, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Notice for Paul, he realized the entirety of his life, even of his death, was an offering in worship. The entirety of our lives is worship. It's not just when we're here in a worship service. It's not just even when we're serving in the walls of the church. But the entirety of our lives, even of our death, is worship to God. And I think for a lot of us, we do get that. We realize that even as we offer money, even as we offer serve with our time, even as we offer and serve with our gifts, that's all part of worship. But one of the areas I want to kind of hit us with this morning and challenge us in a fresh way is I think there's an area of worship that you and I often completely miss. It's an area of worship that's so critical to worship and yet you and I so often miss it. And as a result, I think you and I are missing out greatly in what worship is meant to be. As cerebral, evangelical, Bible church people, there's an aspect of worship that we miss. And particularly what I want you guys to see is that worship also involves our posture before God. I don't know if you guys caught the theme, even as we sang this morning, a lot of our songs all involve some response, not just vocally, but some sense of what it means to also respond physically. That our posture, our physical body is is as much a part of worship as our declaration with our mouth. And yet I think for cerebral, academic, Bible church people in a university town, we often segment worship to be that which is merely verbal or service. Even as you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, words for worship get translated not just service, not just singing, not just worship, but even to bow down. What it means to worship is involving our whole physical being as well. Not just our heart, not just our emotions, not just our time, but even our physical posture and even our physical stance before the Lord. And yet I think it's an area that we often greatly miss. That worship is involving in a response even of our physical body. I've heard it said before, and I'm going to say it again, because I think it's a great kind of cliche in a sense that our body reflects our heart in worship. You see it in a football game. Sometimes I don't think we see it necessarily here in a church service. That our body reflects what's going on internally and emotionally within our heart in our response to the Lord. 
I think a lot of us sometimes, our, our own worship experience, even right here corporately, can grow stale because I think for a lot of us, we've divorced our physical body from the entire experience. And ultimately, we're beginning to worship and experience a worship experience that is divorced from the entirety of who we are. It's not just that our body can reflect our heart at times, but our body can also direct our heart. <laughs> Sometimes my heart's not in it, and so I begin to respond vocally, and my heart begins to move. Even as I respond physically with my stance, with my posture, with my hands, all of a sudden I begin to realize that my heart's beginning to stir as well. You know, for me, often when I take pictures, I often wonder, what in the world do I do with my hands? <laughs> in a photo shoot or in a picture, not that I'm in a lot of photo shoots, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but in a picture, I often, uh, often wonder, like, what do I do with my hands? I feel incredibly awkward. Do I go in my pockets? Do I go kind of by my side? Um, even speaking, now y'all can start watching my hands. I always feel like, what do I do with my hands, all right? Um, and I think even in worship, for a lot of us, we, we think the same thing. What do I do with my hands? Do I raise them? Do I put them down? Do I put them in my pockets? Do I cross my arms? What do I do with my body? It's not just my hands. I think for a lot of us, we're really awkward or self-conscious of what we do with our physical body. But because of that, I think we're missing on the fullness of what worship was designed and what we're called to experience and what we're called to do. I'll tell you guys, probably the way that I've grown more so in the last year and a half of my life walking with the Lord than any other way in the last few years is in this area of my life. As I kind of was looking through this idea, looking through this idea of worship, realizing that it was involving of my physical body, uh, and realizing that I'm a guy, that I'm not the most emotional dude, and that I'm pretty self-conscious, even in a setting like this. Uh, often, I, you know, I was the guy with my hands in my pockets. I was the guy that sat. I was very contemplative all the time, worship-wise. And let me say real quick, that in the midst of this discussion of that our physical body is involved in worship, there's no physical posture that's more spiritual than another. There's no physical stance, physical response that's the most spiritual or the most uh, closest to the Lord of any kind of way, all right? Being contemplative and sitting is a, is a physical response. Raising hands and being very animated is a physical response. Neither is more spiritual than another. And yet I think for a lot of us, we get in ruts and we respond the same physical way every single morning and every single time in the privacy of our own room, even while we're by ourselves. And one of the challenges I want to push us to this morning is to begin to think about how do I involve my body even in worship? And what does that look like? And so we sing about lifting our hands and we sing about kneeling down. And what would it mean and what would it begin to look like if I moved and involved my body? This past week, I was helping a family in town move um, and I hurt my back in the midst of the process. And so I realized two things. One, uh, I'm firmly entrenched in my 30s now. So uh, I'm no longer helping people move, all right? <laughs> uh, I'm done with that, all right? So either I'm going to encourage you to hire movers if you ask me, or I'm just going to fault with the age card now, all right? Uh, my physical body doesn't respond in the same way as it used to, all right? So uh, once I could usually help people move, I didn't have back problems, but I would need to pop Advil. Now I just have back issues for days, all right? So uh, my physical abilities are even changing with age, all right? And for some of us, even in worship, there's some responses that we physically can't actually do. Maybe there's pain involved. Maybe there's an, an inability. And it doesn't mean that it limits our worship experience. But what I want to challenge us to this morning is to begin to think about diversifying that worship experience. With whatever capability we have, does our worship experience look the same every single morning, every single morning in our home or even in church? Or are we learning to use and diversify and use our physical body even in worship? It was one of the most stretching, one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done. <laughs> it was to begin to learn to raise my hands, all right? 
And yet there's something more spiritual about that, but just moving and involving your body actually does begin to kindle a fresh, even more fire in your worship, even a greater experience. And so I want to push us in a way that we often overlook. (laughs) We divorce the body from cerebral vocal praise and worship at times. We we realize that money and time and service are a part of worship, but I think a lot of us miss that our body is called to be a part of this as well. So Peter's going to take us to this idea of worship, and and I want to challenge you to begin to think about a couple questions. How costly is your worship? And to what extent have you involved your physical body in worship? If someone looked at your physical response, what would they declare about your passion for the Lord? It's not that the physical body is necessarily a barometer for your walk with the Lord, but there is some symbiotic relationship between the two even in worship. So Peter's going to take us next, really, as we look at verses 9 and 10, kind of moving on to this second idea of of, uh, witness. And so as we kind of walk through this, I think one of the fascinating things is uh, he's going to pair these two ideas. I remember thinking earlier on, why does he pair these two ideas? Why does worship and witness fit together? And I think if you really think about it, it really is a natural pairing. Uh, Let me take you guys to any time a guy proposes to a girl, all right? Guy uh, plans out an extravagant night, uh, he saves up a ton of money and he often spends, especially if a guy's in college, he spends more money on the ring that he's about to buy for his girl than, than the value of his car that he's driving, all right? Because we guys spare no expense, right? So we're going we're gonna to go all out. We, we, we uh, arrange this great night. We propose. We get down on a knee, put a ring on a girl's finger, and that girl is floored, usually, right? <laughs> Hopefully, right? She's floored. And in a sense, if I, could, if I could make the parallel, her response is one of worship. She's expressing gratitude, appreciation, and adoration for the love that she's experienced, right? And what does she then do next, that same night and that next morning? She tells everybody in her life all about what happened, right? And in fact, she may tell some people who care and some people who don't care, right? She's going to tell that story, right? In many regards, your worship inevitably leads to your witness, your, your response of gratitude for what God has done in your life inevitably leads at times to a declaration of what he's done in your life to others. And so we're going to see even uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, John Piper and he says this. He says, missions exist because worship does not. Missions exist because worship does not. What's the connection? Where, where worship is not existing in people's lives or in places, missions exist so that we can raise and exalt the glory and the reputation of God so that men and women begin to worship where they're not. Why does a girl tell her engagement story? It's not that she's just wanting to show off, but she wants everyone else in her life to think as greatly about the guy that she's just going to spend the rest of her life with as she does, right? What witnessing and, and what evangelism and what missions is all about is reestablishing the worship of God in places and in people's lives where it does not exist currently. It's all about equaling out what you believe in your worship experience and helping people grasp and recognize that in their own lives. And so Peter's going to take us there. In fact, it's not just, witnessing is not just a means to bring about worship, but Paul will say that witnessing is actually a part of our worship as well. He says in Romans 15, he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit that missions exist because worship does not. And so our witnessing is all about reestablishing worship where it does not exist for those who do not worship God. But witnessing is also for you and I, a part of our worship experience is included in a response of worship. But what does it do and and why does it exist? Really, you're going to get a kind of a basic cause and effect in verses 9 and 10. Here's the cause. You and I have received love. Look, Look at how Peter says it, verse 9. But you and I are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Notice what love has done on our behalf. Love made a choice. He chose you and I. 
Love also made us royalty. Love is noble for God. Love also is exclusive. He's made us a holy, set-apart, distinct nation. And love has also made us his possession. This is the greatest valentine you could find right here. First Peter 2, 9, right? But notice, that's the cause, and notice the effect. What's the purpose? Verse 9, second half. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And here's the story that we proclaim as we go. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. It's great even hearing the baptisms this morning and getting to hear a testimony. Because our testimonies are simply that. It's the love story that we have with God. It's what God has done on our behalf and are declaring it everywhere to everyone who will listen. And it's powerful listening because I think, especially in our day and time, our testimony is one of the most powerful tools you and I have to declare to others who do not know God what God has done on our behalf. And I think it's really, really powerful for a couple of reasons. One is it gives you a chance to share in a way that's not offensive what God has done in your life. And it can't be argued. And especially in a culture that I think is still primarily postmodern that will not invalidate your experience, your experience can win a conversation or it can at least allow it to be listened to. It's appropriate to share. And what I love also about a testimony in particular, and you see it even on these baptism testimonies, is that a testimony allows you not just to share what Christ has done subjectively in your life, but it also provides you a chance to share objectively the objective truth of the gospel. What is our good news? The good news comes after some bad news that you and I are separate from God, that our sin has created a gulf between us and Jesus Christ, and yet what Christ has done on our behalf is what we could not do ourselves. He lived a perfectly righteous life, and his death on the cross paid the penalty for our sins so that gulf was bridged. And then by simply believing in his death, his resurrection, we have a hope to come of what will be. And then even as we share our testimony, we get a sense not just of what Christ has done, but what Christ is now doing in my life as I continue to walk. As we kind of wrap up this morning, I want to challenge you guys in a few different areas. One will be your witness, and then second will be your your worship. Uh, You know, honestly, I think as we look at our day and we look at our culture, it is human nature that you and I do not value or notice and perceive uniqueness and beauty in places that are common and in times that are normal. In places that are common and times that are normal, you and I do not appropriately and recognize beauty and uniqueness. I ran across a story of, uh, earlier this semester of uh, a guy, a social experiment was done uh, by the Washington, D.C. Post in 2007. And a guy named Joshua Bell was performing and playing his violin in a uh, metro station in 2007 on a cold morning in January during morning rush hour. And he played for 45 minutes in that subway, in that metro station. And for 45 minutes, 2,000 people passed by. And over the course of those 45 minutes, by the time he finished, no one applauded, no one recognized him. Even as he finished, only six people even stopped to listen to him. And he only received even $32 in the hour that he played. And what no one recognized and what no one realized at that time was that Joshua Bell was one of the most prized and acclaimed uh, violinists in the world. And not only that, but he was playing on a violin that cost $3.5 million. And he was playing six of the most intricately written Bach pieces ever known and ever heard. And even more so, two days prior to this, he played for a sold-out theater in Boston in which seats cost $100 a pop. But in a place that was common... At a time where people were distracted, no one recognized and perceived the beauty of what was occurring and what was right in front of them. 
And the reality is if no one can perceive beauty in a commonplace environment at a distracted time of a world-class violinist that's right in front of them to be seen, with music that's clearly right in front of them to be heard, how much more do people miss the beauty and the excellencies of Jesus Christ who's resurrected and ascended and cannot be seen or heard audibly necessarily? If you and I miss a guy like Joshua Bell right in front of us because it's human nature, how much more do you and I miss the beauties and the excellencies of Jesus Christ in common places and in ordinary times? And if we, the people of God, miss it at times, how much more so the culture of our day and time that's rejected Jesus Christ? The reality of why we witness is that you and I are called to interrupt people's casual view of Jesus Christ. You and I are called to arrest their attention and grab hold of them so that they realize and they can recognize the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into light. And it goes right along with our worship. And that's why you and I are called to witness. And I think for a lot of us, evangelism is a very scary topic. And yet ultimately and essentially all it is is sharing a story of what Christ has done on our behalf. Your testimony is one of your most powerful tools. And so I want to end with a few questions this morning. And that's this. Have you ever written out your testimony? Have you sat down and actually written out who you were before you trusted Jesus Christ, what you trusted and what you believed when Jesus Christ interacted with you and how you were saved, and then ultimately what he's been doing and how he's been transforming your life? Have you ever taken just a few minutes to write out your testimony, your story, in such a way that you could tell it in two minutes, in such a way that you could tell it in five minutes, in such a way that you could tell it to a coworker who wants to know what in the world you believe and how they can have peace and fulfillment and hope? Your testimony is one of the most powerful tools. And so I want to challenge you this afternoon just to consider and take some time and just to write that out. Take some time and then use it as an experience even to worship, to thank God for what he's done in your life. And then use it as a tool for which you can have something from which to connect and to share with people in a workplace, people in a school setting, people in a home, and people with your family. And then let me ask you as well, where can you witness this week so as to reestablish God's worship? Where is it that God is not being worshiped? And where can you step in to bring about the worship of God and the reestablishment of that purpose? That's ultimately what a missional mindset looks like. Whether that's way across overseas or whether that's right here in our workplace, business place, whether that's right here even within some of our own families. That's what it looks like to witness. Then let me ask you lastly, how costly is your worship? If the cost of your worship highlights the value you have on him whom you're worshiping, how costly is your worship? To what extent are you communicating your value as you sacrifice and as you serve and as you give? And then lastly, let me ask you, does your worship involve service and even your physical posture? And next week, we're going to talk about and have a service Sunday. So we're going to give you guys all kinds of ways to serve or to worship in a sense here in our own midst. But this morning, I want to kind of back up before we even get there next week and just ask you, what does your physical posture reveal about your heart and worship? Has it been divorced from your worship experience or has it been included, whether that's here with us on a Sunday morning or even just in private? Not that there's any posture that's more spiritual than another, but if it's to be included and it's a part of how God's wired and created us, then it's a part of how you and I are to express our gratitude and our adoration for him who's worthy and for him who's king. So let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks that you are our king, that you have called us and you've created us and you've wired us to worship And we will inevitably worship. And so, Father, I pray that you would draw us to worship him who is most valuable and him who is supreme over all. Father, I pray that you would call us to worship you who is alive and who is set apart unlike all others. Father, I pray that you would reveal to us, even in our own lives, where our heart drifts and where we worship and we pursue other things that are of lesser value. Father, I pray that you would challenge us. And I pray, Father, I pray you'd stretch us, even in our own worship, that we would begin to respond, even in a way that's physically involved, even if it's uncomfortable. 
And I pray in that experience that you would begin to fan afresh a new flame and a new passion in a way that would be stretching for us. Father, I pray that you'd also give us eyes to see in our workplaces and who you've called us to, to move towards, who you've called us to declare the excellencies of your name, of your glory, of your reputation. And Father, I pray that you give us a real vivid sense of our testimony and how we can share and how we can connect with others. And Lord, I pray that you give us conviction and courage to step and to share. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks for coming here this morning, and we'll see you guys next week.